I don't ordinarily do this, but today is not ordinarily. I have prepared to go through most of chapter 16. By a show of hands, this morning, would you prefer breadth of text or depth of text? Breadth? Depth? Depth? That's what I'm, that was the first vote, and that's where I see the head nod, so we'll, we'll aim for depth of text then. Um, I will open in prayer, and then uh, we will open it up to Deuteronomy 16. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that by it we do save ourselves, and we, as we read and come to it, pray that you would grace us with deepened love for you, These words are authoritative. You've given them to us for life and for good, and we thank you for that. Make these words life-giving to us this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes that we may truly see wonderful things in your law. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I a little echoey, or is that just me? Maybe just me. All right, well... If you are bothered by it, speak to the man who controls it, not me. Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, begins what might appear to be a new section, and in some ways it is, but as I've said before, this is a subsection. So Deuteronomy 16, 1, begins to address the issue of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there are other sacrifices that go out. We began back in June in Deuteronomy 12. And we are still on the same theme as what we began in Deuteronomy chapter 12. If we go back to that chapter, Moses begins by telling Israel in verse 2, this is the imperative of Deuteronomy 12, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And here's the overarching theme that he deals with at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 12. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So his command is to not worship the way the Canaanites worship. Instead of worshiping the Lord their God the way the Canaanites worship their gods, they are to follow the Lord's commands. Tear down everything the Canaanites did, and in its place, do this. The contrast of how Israel is supposed to worship their God comes several times, but we're going to look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord your God. Those different contributions that they are to bring. I'll I'll read you the list one more time. Your burnt offerings your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and vow offerings, those five different offerings. And in verse 6, vow offerings are a subset of free will offerings. 
So vow, free will kind of go together. So those five things, Moses has systematically gone through them from Deuteronomy 12, now through Deuteronomy 16. So Deuteronomy 16 is going to finish that section off. Burnt offerings were dealt with in two verses in chapter 12. Little needs to be said about it because um, when Moses is looking forward to the day where the Lord will choose where to put his name to dwell, there's only one place to offer burnt offerings because there's only one place where the Lord will be. Those are appeasement offerings, and they are addressed in Deuteronomy 12, verses 13 and 14. The next category in verse 11 is sacrifices. These are usually offerings to the Lord that the Israelites eat along with the Lord. They are fellowship meals, we might say, with the Lord. They are addressed in Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 15, all the way down through chapter 14, verse 21. And look at the headings of your text for me as we we look at that. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 15, he's dealing with meat that can be eaten at home and how it needs to be eaten because previously one couldn't eat meat unless it was slaughtered at the tabernacle. Moses blows the doors open on that and says, you may eat meat in any of your towns, but do it in a sacrificial, worshipful manner. After that, in chapter 13, actually starting in chapter 12, verse 29, Moses starts telling the Israelites if a false prophet or a dreamer arises, do not listen to them. And he spends a good chunk of chapter 13 talking about that. And that may seem completely unrelated to the issue of sacrifice. But notice what he's doing. Moses says, speaking of eating, you may eat anywhere in your towns, but remain holy. Do not turn aside from worshiping the Lord when you're eating at home. And when you're doing other things, stay true to the Lord. Then in chapter 14, he deals with the types of meat that might be eaten. Clean and unclean food, all that Israel can engage in. So when it comes to the issue of sacrifice, he touches on what we see as disrelated topics. What does the type of food you have to eat or able to eat have to do with sacrificing to the Lord? Well, what he's doing is he's saying that the, the emphasis isn't on the th- limits that God puts on Israel, but on the lavish concessions that the Lord makes to Israel, which is you may eat anywhere, you may eat all of these different foods, but remain a people holy to the Lord your God. So every time you come to meal, you are doing so in a worshipful manner. And that's what the sacrifices ultimately were meant to convey. We are worshiping the Lord, eating in his presence, and enjoying the goodness that he's given us. So uh, all of that is classified, I think, under the rubric of sacrifices. And that, by the way, incidentally, are the major breaks in the Hebrew text. Lots of subdivisions, but one major break there. Next is tithes. That is giving roughly a tenth of everything that is grown or bred, dealt with mostly in Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22. And if you look at your text, or the headings over the, the paragraphs, you'll see tithe is there. But it, I extend that, and the text seems to extend it through Deuteronomy 15, verse 18. And that includes the sabbatical year, redemption for poor Israelites, all of those sorts of things. What the Lord is doing is he is trying to instill in his people a spirit of generosity because he himself has been generous. Contributions, a bleed over from the tithes, 
That appears to roughly be found in Deuteronomy 15, verses 19 to 23, which is, deals with the treatment of the firstborn. But then offerings. And we come to Deuteronomy 16. The feasts that Israel is commanded to celebrate every year. This falls under offerings. And we'll jump ahead in chapter 16, and I'll show you why. If you go to chapter 16, starting in verse 16, some of you may have two paragraphs under the Feast of Booths. This is actually a separate section. Starting in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is dealt with in relation to the Passover earlier on in this chapter, the Feast of Weeks, which is right above in the chapter, and the Feast of Booths, which is right above in the chapter. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able. That's an offering. So these three festivals are Moses' treatment of what does it look like to give offerings to the Lord in a generous spirit. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So just like a tithe, it is proportion. Proportionate to what the Lord gives, so a man gives back. So all of that to say, everything from Deuteronomy 12 to Deuteronomy 16 is under the treatment of formal worship and particularly not worshiping as the Canaanites do. This is the rubric for Israel's way of worship. And there's a lot that we gain from it as we go through it. Um, I hope you felt that so far, and we'll continue to see it in Deuteronomy 16. I'll pause for just a brief moment. Any thoughts or questions about that broad overview of those chapters? I know it's a lot of material. Yes, so Becky brings up that the tithe, Israel is allowed to eat of the tithe they give. Um, She likens it to Thanksgiving, uh, where we are certainly giving thanks to the Lord, but we actually get to indulge in it. Um, What we are going to have here in the next hour is another form of it. Um, What has provided the meal for us is our tithes and contributions, and we are going to be eating part of it. Uh, And that's good, uh, because the Lord wants his community to be built up, and that happens by giving gifts so it can happen. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 1. We will read verses 1 to 8. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. 
No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset and at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall return to your tents and you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. I'm not going to make a deal of it later, so I'll quick sneak it in now because there's no better place for it. Several times, six times, actually, in these verses from chapter 16, verse 1, to the end of verse 17. That's what we were aiming for today. We're not going to get there. Six times, Moses emphasizes the place that the Lord your God will choose. Israelites are not meant to worship in isolation, and neither are we. We gather where God has placed his name. In the New Testament era, he's ultimately placed his name in Christ, but he has given that name to the church. We gather with the church. That's where God's Spirit is. That's where we gather. That's where we worship. We do not do it in isolation. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, we will see the institution of the Passover. I would encourage you to turn over to Exodus, and you will hear and see how closely Moses is in following Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. This is before the tenth plague rolls through. The Lord gives Moses these instructions. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest, relative, uh, nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons as far as they can eat it, and they slaughter it. Lamb without blemish, verse, seven, or verse 5, verse 6. They keep it until the 14th day of this month. Now there are two options here that you may or may not have given consideration to. How closely together were those ten plagues? If Moses is just now receiving the instruction to take the lamb on the tenth day and wait at least four days before they slaughter it, there is a good time span between, most likely, plague nine and plague ten. Pharaoh had time to ruminate over what he was doing. So did all of his officials. And it's in the fourteenth day that they take the lamb, and it's on that evening that they slaughter it. And then verse seven of Exodus chapter 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and of the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This happened in our March or April. But it's not the Passover alone. It is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Exodus 13, verses 3 and 4. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, that he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Moses gets around to that now in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib. This is the first month of Israel's calendar. So they have a New Year's festival on the first day, but more importantly, they have the Passover on the 14th of the month, and then the 15th through the 21st, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. More than anything else, this, these two celebrated Israel's identity as God's own firstborn. The most important festival in Israel's liturgical calendar was the Passover paired with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they often blur together in Scripture, so if you're wondering how many Sabbaths are there, it's tough to tell. depends on who you're asking. But the most important one was the celebration of Israel's identity as God's people. This is when God slaughtered all the firstborn of Egypt and when he protected the firstborn of his own people. The most important celebration they had was the Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they are supposed to reenact this event every single year. They refrain from, eat, un, from eating unleavened bread for seven days. And then on the what might be considered the eighth day, they have a solemn assembly. Now, if we're, uh, if we're in Deuteronomy 16, run over to verse 7. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. So you can imagine everyone being centered around in one tight place around the Lord's sanctuary. And remember, if you are an Israelite in Egypt, you live in the land of Goshen. You'd probably be a pretty tight-knit community. Even that part is reenacted here a little bit as they're tightly bound around the sanctuary. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Most commentators, who we would call an evangelical persuasion, would say that Israelites travel to Jerusalem, they sacrifice and eat inside the city, and then they return in the morning to go to their tents that are all around the city, and for those seven days, live in their tents, remembering and reliving as a sort their exodus from Egypt. The funny thing is, as we go through this passage, and especially 
as we look at verse 3, notice the logic. You shall eat no leavened bread with the Passover. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of Egypt, the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you, remember, you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. All of these yous are singular. What Moses is saying is as this generation of any given generation of Israelites celebrate the Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're reliving the Exodus event as if they themselves were the ones who came out of the Exodus. So every fresh generation of Israelite every year is reenacting or reliving this event in order that they may remember what the Lord did for them. Now, how they reenact this has a little bit of latitude. They're not actually in the land of Egypt. They are, uh, at this point, living as a free people in their own land that the Lord has given them. So there is some latitude in how they are able to celebrate this event. The first element of latitude comes in verse 2. You may offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd. In the original Exodus, it had to be a male lamb without blemish. Now they may take from the flock or from the herd. The reason for that latitude is probably that the lamb was only essential during the Exodus. Uh, I would call that as a foreshadowing of Christ himself. Uh, But once they are in the land, um, that is not necessarily uh, the case here because they are remembering something and slaughtering a bovine gets the same point across as slaughtering a lamb. You're still doing the same thing. The blood is not applied to anyone or anything. It is a one-time event. What's going on here with the Passover is simply a commemorative act. We do the same sorts of things, though, right? When we reenact the birth of Christ every Christmas, we're not doing anything more other than simply reminding ourselves of what God has done in Christ but that itself is the spiritual benefit. And that's what Moses is doing here in verse 3. You are doing this that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. We're not commanded to celebrate Christmas or Easter or Monday, Thursday or any what we would call Christian holiday. But there is strong biblical precedent for doing so. And this right here is that biblical precedent. It is wise to relive and reenact and be reminded of what God has done for us, and so we participate in it. So don't hold Christian holidays lightly. They're not given the weight of commandment, but they are given the precedent of godly wisdom because God knows we need those reminders of what he has done and who we are. Now, the way they reenact this event also has some important restrictions. For the meat of the Passover sacrifice, just like with the original Exodus event, they have to eat it all that night. It cannot carry over into the morning. Verse 4, No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. So the sacrifice must all be eaten, and they may not eat leaven either that night or for the following seven days. 
Now, throughout Scripture, leaven can never be altered or can never be offered on the Lord's altar. The rationale for that is a little mysterious. It's difficult to tell why, because leaven in itself wasn't a bad thing. In fact, Israelites were commanded to give leavened bread to the priests as part of their due. And so there's nothing inherently bad about leaven in the Old or the New Testament. But there are two reasons given why leaven is removed from the Passover and from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both again come in verse 3. You shall eat no leavened bread with the Passover. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. Here's the first rationale. It's called the bread of affliction. It's a great word for our communion wafers, isn't it? Bread of affliction. But it can also be translated bread of humiliation. Israel, in eating no leaven, ought to be reminded of affliction. The diet that they are on for these seven days and what Israel especially has during the Passover, remember it was bitter herbs that they ate with unleavened bread and the lamb, it's supposed to remind them of the affliction that they actually endured in Egypt and that God was about to free them from. This is not supposed to be a pleasant reminder. It's supposed to remind them of bad things. Part of the ceremony of the Passover is that Israel will remember their state of humility and their state of affliction under the Egyptians. And part of what we are often reminded of when we come to the Lord's table, which is the transformation of the Passover, is that we're sinful. And it's good to be reminded that we're sinful. New Testament and Old Testament logic is different from the wisdom of the world. Nowhere in the world's wisdom will you be taught it is good to think about how bad you are. Our literature is polluted with forgive yourself, think highly of yourself, you can do it, self-help, self-motivation, all of those things. Nowhere does the world say, realize how bad you are. What the Passover is doing with the bitter herbs and the bread of affliction is instilling in Israelites' minds, you are weak, you are helpless. Someone came to your rescue. Remember that by this diet that you are put on, especially the first night, but then for the following seven days as well. So they should experience a sense of affliction uh, as they eat that. They are also supposed to eat this in a specific location, and there's a lot more that could be said there that we're going to pass right over. The location is emphasized twice positively and once negatively. We will look just at verse 5. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. That's the negative, but then positive, verse 6. But at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. The reason they do this is so that they will remember the Passover sacrifice all the days of their lives. And part of the second element of the unleavened bread, first is it's called the bread of affliction. The second is that they left Egypt in haste. That again is in verse 3, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So all of this is to be done even where they celebrate it. Slaughter by the sanctuary, turn, 
go to your tents, stay in your tents seven days, and eat unleavened bread, remembering how hurried you were in leaving the land of Egypt. So all of those things come together, and the main emphasis here is to remember how weak they are and how great a salvation their God worked for them. Because we're aiming for depth instead of breadth here, I will now make the New Testament crossover. Uh, Jesus celebrated the Passover in the New Testament with his disciples. He became the Passover sacrifice. We commemorate that now not annually, but as often as we feel the freedom to, right? Uh, So of the three festivals here, the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread melded together in many texts in the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, there's only one that the Christians actually celebrate with little disconnect from the Old Testament, and that is the Passover. We don't uh, celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the Passover is transformed with Christ as our protective blood while God's wrath is poured out on the enemies of his people. One thing worth noting, Paschal, um, you've heard the word Paschal before, the Paschal sacrifice. The word Paschal is often believed to be God passing over his people, right? You might think that's why it's called Passover. God passed over his people and slaughtered the firstborn of the Egyptians. It actually means protect. So the destroyer goes through the Egyptians' land, and by the Paschal sacrifice, the people of Israel are protected from that destroyer rather than exposed to him. So the Passover is a protective covering, not a sign that the Lord then passes over, leaving the people alone. Christ's blood doesn't allow God to leave us alone. It actually protects us from the wrath of God that is being experienced all around us now, and then who knows what it's like in eternity because we're not there. But what we do know is that we will understand what is happening to those who are receiving the outpoured wrath of God. Romans 9 will say that we are saved as vessels to receive mercy so that the riches of his glory might be praised as he also pours out his wrath on those who are condemned. Christ's blood protects us who are weak and impotent and sinful, we celebrate that at communion. There is often a somber tone to it, and that is good and right, but as we've seen in past weeks, there ought also to be a joyous celebration surrounding it. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is exactly that. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Hebrew, this word almost always has a connotation of celebration. So even while they're eating the bread of affliction, they are rejoicing for seven days. Remembering what the Lord has done. Last day, uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 8. For six days you shall eat the unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, that would be the 21st, not so 14 to 22 to 21 is actually eight days. So this is fun. The, pa- the Feast of Unleavened Bread has a Sabbath before and a Sabbath after. It's bracketed by Sabbaths. The last one is a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. Do no work. And so, as they celebrate that, they depart um, with a regular Sabbath there and with a spirit of joy that they are God's people indeed. Thoughts or questions over Deuteronomy 12, the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread?
And it's easy to confuse these things with a myth. But let's not do it. Very good. Anything else? All right. Feast of Weeks. You shall count, verse 9, you shall count seven weeks, 49 days. This is Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. This is called the early harvest. One thing to notice is that Israel's liturgical calendar or religious calendar is also related to its agricultural seasons. So uh, their seasons are a little bit different than ours, uh, but we can have one close association. If you grew up on a farm, you knew that wheat was harvested before corn, right? Wheat gets harvested kind of mid-year in the summer, um, especially if it's winter wheat, um, but Corn and other grains get harvested in the fall, closer to September, October, November. Israel has the same sort of thing. Barley was the first grain to ripen. Wheat was the second grain. So barley is associated with a feast of weeks. That's how you count when you begin to harvest that. Count 50 days. Feast of booths coming up is related to the harvest and after the harvest of the wheat. So there's a long time span between those two things, as we'll see in a little bit, perhaps. But anyway, when you start cutting the barley, begin to count seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand. So there's that offering again. Which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who is among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Leviticus 23, verse 34, fixes this date. Oh, that's Feast of Booths. My mistake. That was a one we haven't gotten to yet. So this is associated with the early harvest, also known as Pentecost. Whereas before, God restricts what can be offered during Passover. Here, there is no restriction. Instead, they are to offer back to the Lord in proportion to what the Lord has blessed them with. Verse 10. You shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. The tone of this festival is jubilant, verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God because of what they are celebrating. First, they are celebrating that the most dangerous part of their seasonal weather pattern is past, and they have begun to harvest the good of the land. What's going on during those 49 to 50 days that Israel is counting? There are a couple of things that go on. First, there is a driving heat that sweeps over the land of Palestine in order to bring the grain to full ripe. How many of you will remember when Samuel 
warned the people that they were going in a bad way and it began to rain and the people panicked. We are delighted with the rain we've gotten the last few days, right? Rain is good for the harvest. But in Israel's climate, not so. If the rain starts coming, it spells disaster if it comes during these 50 days of ripening. And so during Samuel's day when the rain comes, people are freaking out because it's during this 50 days that they're supposed to be getting the driving heat to make their grain ripen the way it's supposed to. So this, part of what this festival is celebrating is that the heat has come, the rain hasn't, we are able to begin harvesting what the Lord has given us, and not only that, there's also pestilence has passed, flood has passed, heat has come, but not excessive heat because it hasn't withered everything. So just the right amount of heat, and we're able to start harvesting what the Lord has given us. And they celebrate that with a free will offering in proportion to what the Lord has given them. Theologically, there's also something going on here. This is the festival where Israel celebrated the Lord bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai. These festivals also have a theological thrust behind them. And what's interesting is even though this feast celebrates being brought to the Lord at Sinai, look how Moses ends the section here in verse 12. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So the celebration begins with an agricultural reason. It ends with a theological reason, not that they were at Sinai, but the contrast to that, that they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And what in the world does that have to do with what's going on in the Feast of Weeks? Well, I think it's this. Jump up to verse 11. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, Who is to rejoice? You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you. Israel was a slave in Egypt, felt oppression, was brought out by the Lord and brought to himself at Sinai. What a contrast, and what a reason to rejoice. We were slaves, but now we're not. The Lord invited us and provided for us as we came to Mount Sinai. What Israel is doing here, this is the longest, verse 11 is the longest list of those who are supposed to be brought along to the feasts that Israelites' males are supposed to attend. It's required that the males attend. Three times a year, you will come and worship before the Lord at the place he chooses to put his name. The men are supposed to do that. But here in verse 11, the invitation that those men are supposed to extend to those around them incorporates absolutely everybody. Who is supposed to celebrate that the Lord brought them to Sinai? Everyone! And why is that? Because the Lord brought Israelites to Sinai so that they might be a nation of priests. 
the blessing of Abraham is supposed to go to all nations. And what's interesting is in this list, the sojourner is included. That's not an ethnic Israelite. That is someone else who happens to live in the land. Whether or not they are a Yahweh worshiper, bring them along. Bring along the Levite who has no means and has nothing to offer. Bring along the widow who would otherwise be left celebrating at home alone. Bring alone, along the orphan who has no parents to rejoice before the Lord his God. Bring them all along and have them worship here just as you yourselves worship. So in God's provision, this is a celebration of the provision for Israelites uh, and those Israelites who have land, but it goes far beyond that to incorporate everyone else. And so the general command, then at the end of verse 12, be careful to observe these statutes, includes not only the fact of celebrating the Feast of Weeks, it also includes the command of bring others along with you. Don't keep the joy to yourself, let it spread. But then that is amplified as we go to the Feast of Booths. Now, any thoughts or questions over the Feast of Weeks? Very good. A one-time-only question. Any thoughts or questions about what we have covered in Deuteronomy from chapter 1 till here? Even better. In that case, thank you for joining. We are at our time, so we'll shut it down for today. You have been a great group of people to walk through Deuteronomy with. Thank you.